When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, July 16, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Real Vision CEO and co-founder, Rao Pal. We're running a little bit longer today on this show to get in all of your questions for Rao. But first, here are the stories we're watching. Retail sales surprise to the upside, up actual 0.6. That's a big beat over the Bloomberg survey median estimate of 0.3%. The prior on this was 1.3% negative, revised down to negative 1.7%. So a big jump over prior and over the estimates coming positive off of negative numbers last month. CPI, PPI, retail sales all come in hot. Conversely, consumer sentiment, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, surprised to the downside this morning for July. It's now at a five-month low. Bloomberg median estimate, 86.5. Actual, only 80.8. That's below the lowest estimate in the range prior month, 80.5. Looks like the peak was actually in early February, coming in at 102. So consumer confidence is in decline. It's interesting to see this disconnect between retail sales and the sentiment index, possibly a disconnect between coincident and leading economic indicators. We'll probably talk more about that on the show today. Finally, looking at markets, the big loser for the week, the NASDAQ composite index uh, closing out at 14,427. That's minus 1.95% on the week. Lots to watch. Lots to talk about. We are now joined by Rao Pal. Rao, welcome. Good to be here, Ash. It's always good to be here on a Friday. Always a pleasure to have you here, especially on a Friday. Rao, what are you looking at today? So I came on the show uh, two or three weeks ago, and I laid out this thesis that I thought bond yields were going to start weakening. Then I thought the dollar would start breaking higher. And eventually would spill into volatility in equity markets and in commodities. So what played out is bond yields broke lower almost immediately. They rebounded, tested the trend line again, and have started falling. My guess is that bond yields go to 120. Uh, they're currently at about 120, uh, 130. I think they go to 120, maybe stabilize for a while. And then I think we've got a broader move to below 1%. This is on the 10-year treasury. This is the 10-year treasury. I use that as my kind of benchmark. Then um, looking at the dollar, we've been waiting for the euro to break the big head and shoulders pattern at 118, and it's tested it numerous times and hasn't yet. It feels that you know whether it bounces first and catches everybody by surprise or it breaks, but when it breaks, I think it's going to move pretty quickly, uh, and that will see the dollar rising. We're seeing a commensurate move 
in the JP Morgan Emerging Market FX Index, which is getting very close to breaking its uptrend. And I've said this before, when the dollar starts to move and bonds start to move, there's something going on that you need to pay attention to from the macro perspective. So the question is, is what is going on? So the, the narrative started that the Fed were going to tighten, they changed the dot plot. And that started flattening the curve, as it, it should do. But it kind of flattened a bit faster than people expected, which kind of suggested that the market wasn't sure whether the Fed could do this. And I've been eyeing the SESI, the Citigroup Economic Surprises Index, and started noticing that it was about to cross zero. Usually it trends, and we will see longer than expected weaker data. So if we're getting weaker data, then the bond market is probably telling us that we have a growth surprise, potentially, to the downside. Mm. And the dollar tends to be a beneficiary of a low growth environment. It's not a rate-driven story, and the dollar rarely is a rate-driven story. So we're seeing real yields falling again, which has been helping gold, but gold has been trapped by the fact that the dollar is going up, and that makes gold quite unattractive. So it's kind of caught in these headwinds a bit. So what's interesting to me now is starting to see the data suggesting that the bond market is onto something. And it's the data that you talked about. Retail sales now are comping against the worst of the worst period of right. June, as are inflation numbers. But we've had real rises in goods, and they've been rapid, house prices. And we're seeing consumer confidence in all of these fall. So suddenly we're seeing confidence in purchasing cars, confidence in purchasing houses. All of these forward-looking indicators are falling because the price has gone up too fast, that people are like, whoa, I need to stop that. Builders stop trying to build more property because the lumber price, okay, that's come off a lot now. But this is what often happens early stage after we're coming out of a recession. We have this fear that inflation's coming back. It's happened every single time since 1962. Bond yields rise. Everyone goes, oh my God, it's inflation. And what generally happens is the stimulus rolls off and the economy doesn't have traction yet. And that usually happens two times. The Fed actually usually eased twice after the end of a recession to allow the economy to get traction. And then eventually it stabilizes and the Fed can think about normalizing rates. I don't think they will. I think they proved last time that they can't and the debt burden has just gone up. But we get to that more stable point in the cycle. So this point in the cycle here is normally when you see Everybody check their assumptions. You often get a VAR shock in equities. You know, equities sell off sharply because, oh, my God, growth's not there. You know, bond yields fall significantly. Usually they go to new all-time lows at this stage in the cycle. Does that happen this time? I, I don't know. And usually stimulus starts coming back on the table. Now, the political paralysis in the U.S. might mean that it's hard to get across, and the bond market's not going to like that. Stimulus isn't coming, bond yields will start dropping further. Until stimulus comes, the QE comes back, then bond yields rise again. And we go through this cycle for a while. So look, it's a really interesting macro time. We're not 100% there yet, but we're close. Bond yields was the first thing to move. I'm next waiting for the dollar to make its move. Ralph, you know, it's interesting. I can geek out on the data, but you find the narrative. And that's the reason why I enjoy these conversations with you so much figuring out ways of pulling together all of this 
somewhat discordant data, discordant information into a coherent narrative. To that point, let's set up a clip, which I think you just did so well, uh, from a conversation that you had with Julian Brigden on Insider Talks. Uh, this is on Real Vision's Pro Tier. Let's take a look at the clip. I've been kind of using my kind of business cycle framework, and and I think I've talked about this before. For me, and it's yet to be proven out, but for me, every recession, we come out of it, bond yields rise too fast. They then come off. The central bank stimulates twice, um, and then eventually things settle down and we get to the proper growth inflation cycle. Mm. Felt like that could be playing out again, and that's why I've been kind of flagging that chart of bond yields, which broke. Um, and so you're thinking we haven't, we're going to get the second central bank easing, or we had it already? No, I think we're going to get it. Yeah. So I think so. I think we're going to get another round of easing, um, maybe towards the end of this year or next year, and that's including right. fiscal stimulus. So there it is, Ralph. Precisely the same points that you were making the framework for your understanding of what's happening right now. Yes, and you know that's a framework I've been building in both Global Macro Investor and Macro Insiders, which is Macro Insiders is part of the Real Vision Pro tier. And Julian and I have had a disagreement for a while about the stickiness of inflation and how this plays out, uh, which has been tremendously valuable. He nailed a lot of this commodity moves and the reflation moves. And we've started, I think, transitioning to this to this growth scare but the thing I want to focus on is my job is to live in the future, not just comment on what's going on today. That doesn't add any value to anybody. How does this play out? So if I'm wrong and that this is just a repricing based on the dot plots, fine. Then we shouldn't see a great deal of difference with the dollar. A lot of this won't set off and we just continue as normal, which is continue with the reflation trade somewhat. It may be subdued. But let's say I'm right. Okay, that's why I'm interested is there is a better macro opportunity within this, because living out into the future, if we are going to have a growth slowdown sometime in Q2, Q4 or Q1, the Fed stimulus and fiscal stimulus will be on a table back on the table. Mm. Now, what's great about that is if you're a macro guy, you now know the outcome. The outcome is weaker growth, growth stocks start going up. Weaker growth and then stimulus, well, that's like hyper-stimulus for crypto. It starts lifting gold out of the, its linkage with the dollar. So it becomes pretty useful for that. Value tends to underperform over that period. Then as the stimulus starts kicking in, we get that switch again where value starts to outperform growth at the very end of that. Bond yields start rising again. So this whole framework should repeat itself a couple of times and is immensely tradable. For me, I'm more interested in the growth and wealth kind of store of wealth side of the equation, which is gold and crypto plus the growth stocks, because I think that the relative outperformance over time in these trades is much higher just because of the network effects of these and you know the, the increase in the size of the central bank balance sheet. So that's interesting to me. Um, and so I think we're setting up for a very interesting back part of the year. But macro moves slowly. And people forget this. You know, we get one data point a month. So you might get some weekly data, but economies don't move like markets do. So most of the market moves are noise. 
you have to filter out that noise and and creating these narratives where you can test a hypothesis are really the best way of doing that. Yeah. Well, something you alluded to that I really wanted to ask you about is this rapid ping pong between growth and value stocks. How do you think about it? What are the drivers of it? How do you see it shaking out? It is to do with this inflation narrative because um, the super long-term cash flows of growth stocks uh, get discounted by the inflation, so they tend to underperform. They still do okay, but they tend not to do as well. While some of the cheaper value stocks tend to do better on their cash flows, etc. Now, but over time, growth massively is outperforming value, and I don't think that changes. It's something I've called the exponential age. Um, and you'll see an, an amazing interview coming up on Real Vision about it, which I'm not going to leak because somebody will kill me, um, about this. And the exponential age is where we are entering into a period of unprecedented technological advancement of all sorts of innovations that are not at nascent phase, but in adoption phase, where Metcalfe's law becomes the pricing model and right. their prices go up exponentially. Given any weak growth environment, that happens. Any benign growth environment, that happens. Only in the inflationary environment does that slow that narrative. But over time, I think we're going to see this exponential age play out. And I really want to capture this. Yeah. You and I have both gotten in trouble on this show because of our excess enthusiasm. <laughs> Inability. Oh Leaking stuff I'm not supposed to leak. Yeah, me too. Um, but we've got a humdinger of an interview with an absolute legend, the biggest interview ever with them, um, the longest, deepest dive ever. It's amazing. I've seen, the, I've seen the pre-edit version of it. I watched it with a glass of wine last night. It's really cool. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that one myself. Uh, Rob, let me get you uh, on the record on a related point. Something that I've been noticing out here, one of the things that I do is I look at all the major indices over different time horizons. And something that's really striking to me is I've just noticed, and this is a related point, which is the concentration of uh, the rallies that we see. NASDAQ uh, 100 has outperformed the NASDAQ composite 4.64% to 2.52% over a one-month time horizon. This week to date, uh, NASDAQ Composite lost 1.95%. NASDAQ 100 lost only 1.06%. The biggest stocks in the NASDAQ dramatically outperforming some of the other stocks in NASDAQ. What do you make of that? How does it relate to the trade? Part of it is to do with index flows, as Mike Green often talks about on Real Vision. And I think that's extremely valid. Additionally, look at those stocks. I've talked about this in the past. I've been kind of cynical about some of these stocks because I didn't understand them. But we've been in a highly unusual situation that I've not seen in my lifetime, which is that the largest monopolies in the United States happen to be some of the fastest growing stocks yeah. because they're building value on top of their networks, which is this net network value model that I'm talking about, Metcalfe's Law. And I look at Facebook. Okay, Facebook seemed to me like it was going through that dull S-curve moment that Microsoft went through after 2000 and did nothing for 10 years. Microsoft, Facebook wasn't interesting me. 
But now Facebook is about to basically launch a community token that happens to be a stable coin that's going to be regulated from the US, which is Facebook DM. So that they can control transactions, money, um, transfer of money, all of these things. And then they basically built a monopoly on VR. So that's them. Then you go to Alphabet. I mean, all Alphabet is basically doing is, or Google, is they're basically owning all the data so they can own AI, which is one of the other exponential age themes. Yeah. Then Apple is building out AR. So augmented reality, that is what they're trying to own. So now you've got the biggest stocks in the world owning virtual monopolies on the fastest growing sectors. Okay, no wonder the bloody NASDAQ 100's going up. And we've never seen this before. We've never seen the largest stocks in the world owning the growth on the highest growth technologies. No, generally not, generally not. You've seen it occasionally in the pharma industry You've seen it occasionally in the telcos, when the telcos were the racy stocks, but generally not at this kind of magnitude and spread across so many technologies. It's not like just mobile phone technology, which was a big thing in the 90s and early 2000s. This is across kind of most of these things. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. By the way, for people who are curious about, uh, about DM, formerly Libra, your interview with Dante Desparte uh, from the DM project from earlier uh, this year really is must-view viewing on Real Vision's platform. Yes, and also on the Real Vision crypto platform, look at the interviews that I have done, and I post them on Twitter in threads about social tokens, because it's only recently dawned on me that this is a hybrid. This is a social token that goes to three and a half billion people that connects people to the Facebook network in a way that didn't happen before and aligns their interests with the stablecoin element of it it's 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 truly fascinating the market's wildly underpricing how important this is yeah some interesting stuff to be coming uh on real vision crypto on the social token front uh in july and august as well ral i'm looking right now uh at the questions and i see a lot of questions coming up about nfts obviously today uh we are concluding our nft week some of the material here has been fantastic i think uh, we've seen things that we haven't really seen anywhere else in terms of looking at NFTs beyond the crypto kitties, beyond, frankly, the collectibles use cases and understanding what some of the broader context of NFTs uh, is about. You conducted many of these interviews yourself. What did you learn? Basically, I have for a long time been talking about we can tokenize everything conceptually. NFTs were the breakthrough. That was the token that you can tokenize anything on. You know, Mark Cahodis has talked about it using um, the um, T0 platform, but there's a number of platforms doing this. And what does this all mean? It basically means the breakthrough has been made to attach intellectual property or physical assets or digital assets to a blockchain in a method that is transferable instantaneously to anybody and storable and proven in its store. So using that, you can limit scarcity and also imply smart contracts. So the multiple uses of this are almost, we can't think them through. It'll change everything from the insurance business to the real estate business. It'll probably change everything from how we notarize things to the art world, to the music world, to how businesses are built using community tokens, which are basically a variation of NFTs. 
So that whole piece um, in the last week was trying to show that there are like five or six mega trends all converging around NFTs. And this is just the early stage. This is going to really break everything. I think the securities market will be attached to tokens, NFTs. Right. I think we will find, you know, all financial instruments will go that way because why? We can settle instantaneously. We yeah. can trade 24 hours a day. And it doesn't cost anything to do it. Right. So why the hell would you not? I mean, Sam Bankman frieds already doing this with FTX by tokenizing some equities. Yeah. We will see the tokenization of the asset management industry. That's all coming too. And it massively reduces the cost. Anybody who's ever set up a fund knows how painful it is. So this is changing. And there are whole platforms building these kind of businesses out. So this is not me pontificating on a Friday afternoon. This is me saying, I'm talking to all of these people. And this is all happening. And I'm involved personally in a whole ton of this stuff. Because it is incredibly exciting. I think people still think that DeFi was the big breakthrough. I'm a bit of a yawn on DeFi. It's like, yeah, great, yield. I don't care about yield. Um, you know, Price appreciation in a network model is worth more than the yield. When I look at NFTs, you know, that's when I get really excited. And again, I'm not talking about collectibles. I'm not right. really interested in that market. Other people are, and it's very interesting, but it's not for me. What I'm interested in is, I think, a disruption of global business models, supply chains, and all of the things that can come with uh, with NFTs and a change in the entire financial system that could be attached to this technology. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, that's exactly right. And I agree completely with that. The idea that all of the tokens that we're used to are fungible. One token equals any other token. You're happy to exchange it. Non-fungible tokens, the ability to include a digital fingerprint so that every token is unique. You can at very low, in fact, near zero cost, effectively securitize anything, create ties to cash flows on anything, uh, and create all types of residual ownership that was never before possible in human history. This is a big deal. Just think about the complexities of the global derivative market. All of those are smart contracts that come on these big ISDA docks that are that thick. Right. And it's so difficult for the system to clear all of this stuff and know who owns the stuff because I write a swap contract with you and then you use that as the collateral for another one. And then somebody builds an option contract using the same collateral. It's so complicated. Yeah. This changes derivatives forever because each can have a unique NFT. And so therefore we can trade it and we know who owns it and what cash flows are built off it in terms of other smart contracts. So it just makes the world more functional. Yeah. It functions in a way that, that really aligns itself with the digital age we're now living in, where we expect to, I expect to click on my, slack or zoom and get you in three seconds and watch you via video well the money system doesn't work like that nor does the value system nor does basically the entire world's contractual contractual systems right you know it's stuff like insurance all of that changes yeah and it also radically aids transparency we saw this in 2008 
the ability to effectively programmatically see where positions are to net out from a notional basis uh, what the derivatives values are. These were all things that took not days or weeks, but months and years to figure out during 2008. Yeah, and never underestimate humans' ability to fuck things up by using leverage and complicate things, and they will do it. Um, so don't expect it to end up being any different, but it might be cleaner and more robust and a more anti-fragile system is yeah. what we're all after. That's what scared the living daylights out of us about the debt bubble, the super right. cycle, is the fragility that, that it beds because we don't know who owns what right. and how to count the chips at the end of the day. This solves that, but it solves so much more problems than just the financial system. Yeah, it's the fragility and the opacity, right? Blow-ups happen. Humans will blow themselves up, usually with leverage. Uh, there's no getting around that. But the idea that you will know who you can trust and who you can't, who your counterparties are, who are going to be able to pay, and who's blown up, that's huge. And, and this is one of the things that I observed about the, the blow-up in crypto, You know, the 50% drop, and then some of these DeFi protocols fell 90% short periods of time. You know, There was a, the wiped out tons of value out of that market, and nothing happened. Why? Because everybody's over collateralized. Right. Everybody knows who owns what. Yeah, there's things that projects that don't work and there's scams, same as there are in equities and startups and every other aspect of life. But there's a robustness that is there. Doesn't mean things won't blow up because people design bad business models, people you know don't get it right. But that space has robustness and people need to pay attention because that's extraordinary. Well, let me ask you this on a slightly uh unrelated or related point, I guess, depending on how you think about it. Uh, why do we see so much durable resistance uh, at 50% of the 52-week highs on so many of these coins? Uh, Bitcoin right now is at 50.83% uh, off of its 52-week high. Why is there so much resistance? There? I don't know. Humans are weird, right? It's behavioral. You know, I want to buy it because it's down 50% to, oh my God, it's down 50%. I need to sell it. And the buyers meet the sellers. It's kind of, you know, the that's what we are. I mean, I, I use technical analysis because it's the behavior of crowds. And Fibonacci ratios, they work too. 50% uh, is a Fibonacci number. Um, so all of this stuff kind of works. I don't know whether the crypto market has another leg lower before it recovers. You know, that's Tom Demark's thinking that I've been talking to. He thinks there's another sharp sell-off. My personal view is I don't think there is. But who am I to question Tom? He's pretty good at this stuff. Um, but it all matters. What matters is your time horizon. You know, mm. If your time horizon is five years and you're expecting a 10x or 20x, then a 50% pullback is within well within a one-stand de deviation normality. And once you understand that, you stop fretting about all of this stuff. Yeah. Speaking of time horizons, our first question comes to us from Tom. Tom, one of our regular viewers uh, at Real Vision Daily Briefing, uh, and he's looking at this from a maximum time frame. The question is. Raul, do you ever think we will break the multi-year downtrend in bond yields meaningfully and sustainably ever in our lifetime? My actual hunch is no. My actual hunch is we won't. Because as leverage keeps building, it pushes bond yields down because rates can't go up as much. So it changes the natural order. Technology is hugely deflationary and it's only accelerating. So are we going to go through a time where we get total financial repression, where bond yields stay negative 
for an extended period, possibly. And not in real terms, in nominal terms too. Mm. And I think we've seen that many times in the past when you go back long enough in time. There are whole periods of time you can do this. So, no, I'm not entirely sure with the structure of global society, technology, globalization, um, and the debt burden that this can change. So unless they manage to completely devalue the value, the purchasing power of fiat currency to such an extent that you've basically eradicated the debt, then could you see a normalization? Possibly, but how are you going to generate long-term inflation with this secular setup? So I don't see it, but mm. could be wrong. Interesting. Here's one that comes to us, uh, a question from Ralph Humphrey. Does Ralph have any view on China's clampdown of Chinese tech? We have seen this periodically. Um, the Chinese don't seem to like to have people who build monopolies or who have power. Now, we don't know why. We see it in Russia, too, and we see it in many other authoritarian states. Usually it's that somebody has crossed the state, whether they've been taking money out of the country or they have not given the state access to the data that they would like, or they've upset somebody at a dinner party. We don't know. That's the authoritarian way. And that's basically the definition of authoritarianism. So I think it's a feature of Chinese society. And it makes it hard for foreigners to pour capital into China because the business can evaporate overnight. And Russia has been the, the lead example of that. Many people won't invest in Russia because if a business cross, crosses Putin the wrong way, he will basically destroy it and change the ownership hands. There are some businesses that are investable in those countries, and you can make a lot of money from doing it. But it just adds a different layer of risk, and you need to be compensated for the reward with it. Right now, you're not being compensated in China. I mean, the Chinese, the Shanghai Composites up 2% of the year, one of the worst performing markets for this reason. If I'm looking at Russia, on the other hand, it's got the, uh, it's got the benefit of um, commodities behind it. It's in line with everything else at about up 16%. So, you know, it depends. Yeah. I'll also connect uh, the dots between two things you said uh, about Facebook uh, and Google and then Chinese tech. I think you're absolutely right. Your second point, it's about the data. I think there's definitely a data component behind this. The Chinese government is very sophisticated in their understanding of the power of data, the power that data can bring to the state. And I think that there's something going on there that we're not yet 100% clear. Yeah, and you know, TikTok has taken the world by storm. It is a data gathering machine, and the U.S. banned it and then didn't. Kind of weird. But they're now, ByteDance are now building out a whole platform for other people to use their data because it's the best AI on earth, almost. It's incredibly addictive, TikTok. And everybody else will use it, and the state will gather data. But let's be fair in this discussion. Google owns more data on Earth than any other entity, about more people on Earth than any other entity in all history. Now, now, if you think the US does not think of um, Google as a sovereign protectorate, 
You're fooling yourself. If you don't think that Google has deep links with the US government with their data, you are kidding yourself. They're both the same thing. One is dressed up as fluffy and the other's dressed up as mean. They're both exactly the same. That was exactly what I was going to ask you, Ralph. So what was that relationship here? Very interesting. Very interesting points. Um, another question comes to us from DD, shifting gears. Uh, do you think there will be another stimulus check or extended unemployment past September due to the Delta variant? News out, I believe, last night that Los Angeles was going into uh, more mask mandates. You know, I don't know. It depends. It's a balance between the vaccination and the rise of the Delta variant and whether it's needed enough people are impacted or not. I really don't know. Have to keep our eye on it. I've talked about before the aftershocks of something tend to become less important as they go. So the first aftershock, which is the Delta variant, is making everybody very nervous. The second aftershock will be like a Brazil variant, a new one. People get less nervous again as more people get vaccinated and we understand that hospitalizations aren't going to go up and the death rate's not going to go up as much. So I don't know. It's going to be a factor in the equation of this slowdown that I think is coming. Again, not I'm not calling a recession or anything. I'm just calling it just growth is going to slow a bit more than people expect. Um, it'll be part of that too. Yeah. Here's a question that comes to us from Hugh Meyer actually about NFTs. Uh, what metrics are available or may become available to analyze sentiment with NFTs, volumes, et cetera? Any new data points? Did you learn anything interesting in your experience uh, about how we can measure this? Well, it depends what we're measuring. What is an NFT? I mean, you know, this we have no idea. So right now, all you can look at is how much money has been invested in it and the value of the space. But I think even that's going to be not even relevant once you start putting different things on nfts so you'll have to break it out sectorally so you know there's a lot of there's already seven and a half thousand crypto instruments uh, trading and as the nfts come out there's millions more and there's companies like luca in the space that are building this technology out to understand and clean up the data for all of this and then we can have data analytics but it is so early and the growth rate of this stuff is so fast that nobody else has caught up yet. Yeah. Here's one from Tom uh, about the equity markets. What do you see as the key anal uh, the key catalyst for U.S. equity markets, uh, and and what is the role that oil plays in that? The key catalyst for the U.S. equity market is economic recovery, GDP growth, plus the Fed balance sheet. So it's basically as simple as that. If GDP is growing, equities are going up. They can have sell-offs, but they'll go up over time. So that's the ISM over 50 uh, generally means that equities will go up. You can get shocks within that, as I mentioned. Then it really is a function of the Fed balance sheet, which will super goose parts of this. So we've seen that in the past. So that's what, for, for, that's what US equities are all about. Oil plays next to no role in it, except high oil prices cramp consumer confidence because um, spending, marginal spending has gone to oil as opposed to other goods and services. So it's generally not a good look as the oil price goes up. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Peter. Uh, how do you see gold and gold miners uh, with the US dollar surging to 97 or above? He's talking about on DXY. Yeah, I. a rate of change will hit gold and gold miners. 
So I think it's difficult headwinds. It's only until we start to see the eyes of printing, i.e. growth slow down and the market starts going, actually, you know what we need? We need more stimulus. Will gold offset the dollar and start to rise again and outperform the dollar, which it has been doing over the last five, six years. Over time, it's outperformed the US dollar and outperformed a basket of all the major 27 currencies. So problem is, it's actually, it's a really difficult trade because you've got these two different Mm. Um, variables and we need more negative real rates to drive up gold gold is not the easiest trade well let me ask you this um us uh, us dollar index dxy right now at 92 spot seven what's your current outlook on the dollar and on the dxy specifically so i've taken the five or six year range of the dollar and basically 97 is about the range 96 to 98 is the range my view is all currencies, major currencies, are stable and that no central bank wants it to change. So everybody gets very bearish at the bottom of the range recently. And my guess is that at the top of the range, you know, around 100 or so, everyone's going to get very bullish. If there is a breakout, I think it's to the upside, but I don't see the conditions of that in place. I think the actual conditions are a range-bound dollar for a significant period of time and that every central bank and all the supranational organizations don't want currencies to move. They don't want bonds to move. They don't want credit to move. They want the whole lot to not do anything because then you don't blow up. What that does is release a pressure valve on equities and equities go up a lot because if nothing else drives returns, then everybody pours it into the thing that drives the most returns, which is equities. Yeah. Uh, a very serious and somber question from Paul E. Raul, I see a fancy barber chair behind you. Are you open for business? <laughs> That's where you do the tequila shots on a Friday night. <laughs> but this is, uh, yeah, this is a 1950s barber's chair that I've had done. And that's actually where I listen to podcasts. So I sit in the chair with a coffee or whatever and listen to podcasts and uh, can lock the dogs out of the room so they don't annoy me. So is it like lean back, feet up, like you're getting a shave? It's a proper, proper barber's chair with all of the the mechanics to lift the feet up, lift the head back, do all of this stuff. Oh, fantastic. So I mean, before... you, you, you were still a, you were a kid in the 50s. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Jack thinks I was. <laughs> Pretty sure. Uh, so Jack Rob... is a kid who thinks he's 50. That's yes. different. Yeah, very well said. He's the mirror image. So, <laughs> Raul, as we head off to Tequila Shot and Podcast Hour here uh, on a Friday afternoon, what are your final thoughts? What would you like to leave our viewers with? Uh, for your outlook from where we are right now? Patience. We don't know how this plays out. Don't force a narrative if, if it's not happening. There's a, there's a decent chance that this might have the traction, but patience. There's, I don't see the big home run opportunity anywhere right now. So, you know, it's the summer. Have a barbecue, put on some music, have yourself a cool drink, and just enjoy the weekend. But the broader themes are still very much in place in your view, Raul, in terms of the exponential age, uh, your outlook for technology, AI. Yes. So macro, long-term time horizons. There are periods of time when nothing happens. There are periods of time when everything happens. And there's periods of times when the complete opposite happens. In a long-term framework, all of that should be expected. And you can't force your narrative. You can't say, well, I desperately want to buy ARK Invest today because I love the exponential age theme. 
Well, if it's not its time to shine, then you're going to get a bad entry price. So try and find the good entry price. And that requires sitting on your hands. Build your framework, understand your own framework, and then wait for the opportunities. So many people just think, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I need to buy Apple, Google, Amazon. I need to do this. No, that's not what we do. And that's why I'm more than comfortable to ride out the volatility in crypto. I have my macro theme. I have my time horizon. I have my acceptable level of volatility and price action. I have my entry price, which is way below here. So right now, I just need to put my fingers in my ears and filter out the noise. Yeah, and everyone pour themselves a big glass of red wine or spirits or beer or the tipple of your choosing. We've gotten through another week. <laughs> exactly. It seemed like a long week as well. I'm looking for a nice, quiet weekend. Me too. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Ash. And have a good weekend, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.